Hey guys, as we've stated at the beginning of each episode, because of COVID, we are recording remotely via Zoom. With that, we are a team of two, so glitches, delays, and sound challenges are imminent. Thank you guys for sticking with us. We truly appreciate all of the support. And just know that bringing such rich content to you guys is truly a labor of love for us. Welcome back to Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. I'm one of your hosts, Renee Rethel. And I'm your other host, Kisa Holke. And today, uh, our episode is called Listen to Dr. Ron Wright. As we continue to talk to people of color regarding areas that are not equitable and just, one of the most important topics to discuss is in the area of healthcare. Today, we have the opportunity to listen to uh, Dr. Ron Wright. Dr. Wright graduated with a BA in French from Tulane University in 1994, where he was the first African-American homecoming king at the university in 1993. After finishing college, he went to the University of Louisville School of Medicine, finishing in 1999. He is currently one of three physician owners of Women Care LLC in uh, Jeffersonville, Indiana. Dr. Wright practices full scope women's health care. Dr. Wright has been involved with many community activities, including volunteering at Beside You for Life Pregnancy Center, as well as having served on the governing boards of St. Elizabeth Catholic Charities, Clark Memorial Health, and the University of Louisville President's Council. In addition, he holds teaching faculty appointments at several different colleges and universities. Dr. Wright and his wife, Jennifer, have lived in Louisville, in the Louisville area for over 17 years, and have a daughter, Katie, who is a senior in high school, a son, Alex, who is a high school junior. Welcome to Two, Do- Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, Dr. Wright. We're very happy to have you here today. Thank you, and I am honored to spend the afternoon, a little bit of time here with you both. Thank you for being here. So let's um, let's get right into it here. We know, most of us know, that there are disparities in the mortality rates in women of color versus Caucasian women. In fact, the CDC newsroom reports that Black, American Indian, and Alaska Native women are two to three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. Dr. Wright, why do you think that is? When you look at the research and the studies that have gone uh, to looking into this problem, um, a large part of it is access, um, being able to access Healthcare is a major part of improving your own well-being. And if you have difficulty getting to a doctor's appointment because, say, for instance, you are taking care of multiple kids, you're a single mom, for instance, or if you uh, have a job and you have to try and make ends meet, that makes it difficult for you to be able to take that time out to do the things that you need to do. Um, Also, some people don't have vehicles, they don't have a reliable vehicle. And so sometimes it may be more difficult for them to get to doctor's appointments or to the hospital for uh, even routine tests, routine lab work, routine healthcare. And, And those disparities are magnified in across racial lines. Um, Black women have more difficulty uh, uh, accessing healthcare because of the financial difficulties involved in that. Unfortunately, and and I I guess fortunately, partly, is that we're also finding that there is some inherent bias in the way that people look at Black women's complaints, and that affects their ability to receive proper health care as well. If you're seeing a doctor who doesn't really uh, 
understand the background that you come from and they uh, hear you say a complaint that maybe it, it just doesn't sound like something that would really be a significant issue to them, that can over time compound a problem that you may have that's underlying and, and cause your health to deteriorate because of it. Dr. Wright mentioned there still being inherent bias in healthcare as it pertains to people of color today. An author for the Association of American Medical Colleges states that half of white medical trainees believe such myths that black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's. Black people's skin is thicker than white people's. Black people's blood coagulates more quickly than white people's. Then we have Marion Sims, who was known as the father of gynecology. Sims' research was conducted on enslaved black women without anesthesia. Medical moralists, historians, and others say his use of enslaved black bodies as medical test subjects falls into a long, ethically lacking history that includes the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and Henrietta Lacks. These are the hidden biases and false notions that provoke insufficient treatment of minorities' pain. Uh, the Center for American Progress has begun to examine the multifaceted issue of disparities and not only maternal, but infant mortality for African-American women and infants. It states, African-American women are three to four times more likely to die from childbirth than non-Hispanic white women. And socioeconomic status, education, and other factors do not protect against this disparity. So why do you think that is? Well, when you look at um, some of the research that was started um, way back a, a while ago, probably about... 15 years or so ago, there was a group at Harvard at the School of Public Health there that started looking into this uh, this phenomenon of, of poor outcomes for Black women in healthcare. And one of the things that they have uh, identified is a term called weathering. And what weathering is, is just like if you have a car that sits outside every day and is uh, outside and you drive it every day, it gets exposed to the elements every day. If you have the same car and it's parked in the garage every day, you still may drive it. But the de the um, the weathering or the deterioration of that car's condition is greater in the car that's been exposed outside all the time versus the one that's in the garage. And, and so women, Black women especially, are in that same kind of situation because of the stresses in life that relate to financial pressures, social pressures, racial pressures, those all have a cumulative effect on the general health of black women. Um, and these same things are not seen when you look at white women or uh, other women who are non-Hispanic white comparatively. Did you know that heart failure, a major public health problem, has increased most dramatically in young Black American men and women? Cardiovascular disease kills nearly 50,000 Black women annually. The health of Black women is so intricately tied to the environment and the society around them, the culture around them. And so all these things continue to pile up and then they create essentially this or they, they essentially chip away at the health of Black women over time. And so when something occurs that might not be a significant event for a, uh, uh, a white woman, 
because of that weathering effect become a very significant effect on on the black women. And it it goes across all social uh, strata as well. We don't see this only in poor black women, black women. We see this in uh, well-educated and very, very well-educated black women as well. What we also see is that unlike in white women who tend to get healthier as they go from teens to middle age, Black women tend to get less healthy as they age instead. So there's a reversing of the effect of time with Black women, and and this is definitely tied to the stresses that they undergo. When you're a teenager as a Black child, you may not experience as much of the social um, and racial barriers because you're a kid and you're running around hanging out with other kids. And so these things may not build up in you or may not affect you as a, as a youth. But over time, most Black women will have to have some kind of interaction with a very negative society in general. And that builds up and causes an increase uh, in their different substances in their body that actually can, over time, create a more significant kind of a perfect storm for health problems. Wow. And I guess, you know, if you couple that with uh, what you shared in the previous you know, uh, question, if there's any bias, um, lack of concern for issues that, you know, black women would, would share, you know, being seen by a medical professional would probably compound uh, that issue perpetuated getting worse. So absolutely. Ah, man, that's uh, that's interesting. I never I never thought about that because I can think about in my own life, you know, in my, my young 40s. Yeah, I certainly didn't experience half the things you know that would be related to stress that i have in my my older years and as a as a teen so no thank you for that i think about just the stress of having black children too as a mother like the stress that's thrown on you for that and wanting to protect your black children from you know just life and so yeah thank you for that dr right that's super informative for all of us to hear The Harvard research study regarding poor outcomes for women of color in healthcare was extremely hard to hear. To know that there are deadly stresses for African-American women and other women of color, regardless of economic status, is disturbing. Instead of getting better with time, the cumulative effect of social stresses can decrease their quality of life. Studies like these have been noted, but why aren't medical professionals listening? That same article from the Center for American Progress said, while such disparities have a number of dimensions, sexism and racism are not the primary drivers. The main area for reform is the current structure and function of the healthcare system. So two questions for you, Dr. Wright. One, do you believe that statement to be true? And then two, if a person is government subsidized, does that automatically subject you to less than stellar healthcare? So I'll answer the second question first. Uh, if you're subsidized, does that automatically mean that you're exposed to less than stellar health care? I trained in Dallas, uh, essentially downtown Dallas at the county hospital there at Parkland Memorial Hospital. Parkland takes care of the poorest of the poor in Dallas. 95% of our patients actually were from Mexico. They were um, typically illegal immigrants into the to the city, and we took excellent care of them. And because of that, 
Parkland has a reputation for doing, uh, providing excellent women's health care and excellent care in general. And those populations are either subsidized or don't have any money at all. And so it's not necessarily true that they um, don't get uh, good care, but the access to getting there is sometimes a difficult thing. And so if you can't get to the hospital to deliver your baby in time, you may have increased risk for uh, complications of prenatal, uh, of uh, the prenatal period. For instance, if you can't get to the doctor to have your routine uh, OB checks, you may have high blood pressure, you may have elevated protein in your urine, you may have all the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, but because you can't get to the act to the doctors to see that, for them to see that, you won't get diagnosed until you either show up in full-blown preeclampsia or worse, eclampsia, which is a condition where women be de- develop seizures because of uh, the, uh, as a part of worsening of their preeclampsia. Did you know there are 11 infant deaths per 1,000 live births among Black Americans? This is almost twice the national average of 5.8 infant deaths per 1,000 live births. It is not always that subsidized subsidized, um, insurance gives you poor care. It's just the the social surroundings around these people um, contributes to that. And so generally in those kind of hospital systems or patient systems, you'll see people who are sicker in general and sicker people tend to do more poorly. And um, so that's how that question would be answered. Um, with the first question about whether I, um, I believe you said whether I uh, feel like, you know, I can't remember what the first one was. Can you remind me? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Center for American Progress said, while such disparities have a number of dimensions, sexism and oh. racism are not the primary drivers. The main area right. for reform is structure and function. I can agree with that statement um, because I see the sociologic uh, issues that are involved in healthcare and the the financial and all those kind of things, but <clears throat> there is definitely an inherent bias against the complaint of the black woman in in our society, and that happens. That doesn't stop just at the um, outside the medical office. It occurs inside the medical office and occurs inside the hospitals. Why are the voices of Black women not important or diminished, especially as it pertains to our health? Regardless of status or celebrity, our voices are constantly minimized. Um, you know, if you look up information about this topic, one of the most uh, upsetting things that you'll see is, for instance, Serena Williams. Um, when she had her child, she had a C-section, And Serena Williams uh, said that she complained multiple times to her nurse about having difficulty breathing and having all all these symptoms that if you were probably, if she were probably white and said those same things to her doctor, it would have set off some alarms to think there's something really wrong going on with So she was, Serena Williams was able as a strong black female to continue to push and say, there's something wrong, there's something wrong. And ultimately they 
found out that she had a blood clot in her lungs, a pulmonary embolism. And so she, had she not been a great self-advocate, she could have died from that. And so when we look at a, say, for instance, a teenage Black woman in a hospital, which is already a scary setting already, most teenage Black women are not going to advocate for themselves. Even middle-aged Black women, a lot of times, are not going to advocate for themselves when they think that something's wrong and they think that their complaints are being dismissed. And so if you don't continue to make a stir about the problem that's going on or that you think that there's a problem, then those kind of things could get missed and they can have very, very disastrous results. In a 2018 Washington Post article, Serena Williams shares how she almost died after delivering her daughter via an emergency C-section. She suffered a pulmonary embolism where blood clots blocked arteries in her lungs. While she had a history with developing clots and knew what she needed to get things under control, her insistent concern wasn't enough to make the nurse act swiftly. It was only after a CT scan that they began to treat her properly. Her celebrity didn't save her from the biases in the medical field that could have cost her life. Another story that um, is really hard to hear is about um, a person named Shalon Irving. And Shalon Irving was a um, epidemiologist at the CDC. So she's not an uneducated woman. She is a very well-respected woman and she actually had dedicated her life to identifying and fighting disparities in the healthcare uh, given to Black women. Well, Shalon, back in, I believe it was in 2017, she um, had a child and um, she died from hypertensive complications that occurred um, several weeks after she'd had a C-section. And, that, and that's because she continued to tell her doctor something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. She ended up dying after about five hours after leaving her doctor's appointment. And so you, when you have systemic bias against the complaints that uh, women provide, then you are going to continue to have this kind of outcome. And this also translates true uh, to just women in general, because women in healthcare or women patients tend to have their complaints ignored. And so until we as a society of healthcare providers sit down and actually look at the evidence and look at our own practices and start working better toward listening and treating the, the individual patient, we can't just plug everybody into the same per white person-shaped hole and say that the outcomes are all going to be the same and, and that this was just bad luck for this uh, uh, person, Dr. Irving. The Shalon Irving story makes us angry. This woman was an epidemiologist, someone who analyzed data to find the causes of diseases or other health problems for a living. She, like too many others, shares this tragic story. Yeah, and I, I can share, and, and I don't know, I, I didn't really think about this much, Renee, prior to, to uh, Dr. Wright speaking, but my own personal experience with my 23-year-old daughter, I had a, a, a doctor who wasn't very 
personable at all and didn't listen much to to my concerns. Um, at the time, I had a dry birth with her. My, my water broke at like six in the morning and I didn't have her until around noon. I'd been giving been giving given sleeping pills and, and muscle relaxers, different things the night before because I was going to be induced. And uh, it just they had to wake me up to push, you know, and I just I happened to be recording this guy, you know, recording my my uh, delivery, you know, um, and his fa- he just he was so disgusted with me with, you know, when I was when I was awake and telling him different things that was was going on with me, you know, it just it was just very dismissive. And when I thought back, he was very dismissive of a lot of things um, at, at doctor's appointments that I was saying I was experiencing. And, uh, you know, I thought he's, he's probably thinking, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old and I don't know what I'm, you know, it's, it's, this is routine, just go on. But it was really, it was disturbing at the time because I felt like, man, this is really happening to me, but maybe, maybe it's not, it's just not that serious. And so I ended up having her and I got a hematoma. I had to have a blood transfusion because they had to, uh, I had, I was getting, I had a blood clot, I believe. And I was passed out through, through most of it after the birth, but it was, she had a lot of narcotic in her system when she came out, you know, just wasn't Mm -hmm. sure if she was going to make it. She was blue. You know, there was a lot, there was a lot of trauma there and a lot of stress. And it's, I don't know why I didn't think about that prior to now. And just that there is some validity to some of the biases, uh, especially toward us, you know, I guess, you know, the lesson out of this, if there is something that you're feeling, you know, say it, advocate for yourself, like you said, uh, Serena Williams did, and I don't, I didn't at the time. I was emotionally reminded of my own story, as Dr. Wright shared Shalon and Serena's stories. At the age of 20, I wasn't truly aware of the ins and outs of pregnancy. I had no idea what I should or shouldn't be feeling. The lack of concern for how I did feel at the time was truly minimized, and I felt like I was an annoyance to my physician. After having to be induced, the birth of my daughter was stressful, to say the least. I had toxemia. I had to have a blood source embolized. I had a hematoma that developed as a result and ended up needing a blood transfusion. I didn't realize how close to death my daughter and I both were because of the trauma. I wish I knew to advocate for myself at that time. My dear sisters of color, please be confident in what you know about your health experiences. Advocate for yourselves and for others until you're heard so that these disparities begin to fade away for good. This is hard to hear for me as a, as a white woman. Um, and I've never given birth. I've, both of my children are adopted. So some of this I don't fully understand. But, you know, my best friend is a midwife in Nashville and she works at a hospital where she sees a lot of refugees and immigrants. And she's talked about the same things, Dr. Wright, where... Um, you know, she's seen a lot of this bias from doctors and other midwives towards women of color. And a lot of her patients are, like I said, immigrants, refugees, and so they don't speak great English. And she said they see a lot of problems arise from that because not only do they feel like they can't speak up for themselves, they literally can't speak up for themselves. And so it's just another example in my mind of these are the healthcare professionals are the ones you are supposed to trust. You know, the police officers are the ones you are supposed to trust. And if there's bias in that industry, how, how do we, I don't know, how do we get past this? Once again, it's my question I always ask, how do we get past this and make it better? Well, I, I think it starts in the healthcare world with where we are doing our education and how we are providing our education. 
And I know, for instance, the University of Louisville has a very uh, active or proactive diversity initiative um, for their medical students who are learning about all kinds of different uh, all kinds of differences in their patient populations. And so, programs that are trying to improve how we look at the person as an individual, how we uh, can say, you know, just because uh, white woman X and black woman B are exactly the same gestational age, they don't necessarily have the same backgrounds. And trying to look at the background in the patients and trying to develop that empathy for patients is something that you have to start early in in the medical education uh, uh, process because once you get out into your residency or definitely out into private practice, your ideas have pretty much formed and there are not a whole lot of things that uh, can change them. Um, Unfortunately, your unconscious bias is what can sometimes uh, cause uh, dramatically bad outcomes for certain patients and certain populations because you just you're not aware of your own personal bias against them or against the way that they complain and and you know we we talk about uh, how 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 a person looks is so much is so important to so many people in society and and if you and uh, in, in the healthcare, it's not any different. There are healthcare providers who look at someone and say, that person's wearing a hoodie. That means they must be a gangster. That person has kinky hair. That means they must not be educated. That person's a woman. So she doesn't really know what I'm talking about because I'm a man and I've gone to med school. And, and you know, in obstetrics, we also have the added problem of fatigue, And when we are in the middle of the night called in at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. to come deliver a baby, you know, most people would not be in the best of moods when that happens. And so the you you have to have a conscious effort to stop your eye rolling when you have someone make a complaint and you have to start thinking, okay, I'm I'm thinking that this is not uh, uh, a valid complaint. But is that because I'm tired? Is that because I have a bias against this person? Or because, or is this really something that's serious and I need to take a step back and look at this um, with a more, with a clearer lens? And so it's all gonna, it, it really is hard to do it when you're already out there in practice. I think it needs to continue to be a strong push in the medical education part of healthcare. Isn't it a shame that you can be racially profiled in the doctor's office? The fact that unconscious bias seeps into a place where everyone deserves the same level of care should be unthinkable. Having proper training, inclusive of racial sensitivity and bias indicators, is paramount for medical students. It can literally be life or death for a person of color. Join us next time on Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed as we talk more with Dr. Wright about what medical students and medical professionals need. At the end of every episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, we tell a two-minute story about a Black hero who's made an impact in history. 
Today, we are celebrating Dr. Helen Octavia Dickens, the first African-American woman admitted to the College of Surgeons. She was born in 1909 and the daughter of former slaves. Dr. Dickens, who was admitted to the American College of Surgeons in 1950, used to sit in the front of her class in medical school, making it easier to ignore the hate and racism being thrown her way by her classmates behind her. She ended up specializing in obstetrics and gynecology. Her father was Charles Warren Dickens, a former slave and water boy during the Civil War. He was raised by a Union colonel from the age of nine. He gave himself the name of Charles Dickens after meeting the famous novelist. Her father was well-educated and self-taught in many ways, but because of racism, he never moved up from janitorial work. Her mother, Daisy Jane Dickens, was a domestic servant. Helen came from humble beginnings, but her parents always pushed her to get a strong education. They even encouraged her to attend a desegregated high school. So Helen went after it. She applied to the best schools and hospitals in her 20s, never intimidated by so-called white institutions. Dr. Elizabeth Hill, the first African-American physician to graduate from the University of Illinois, was one of young Helen's mentors. Dr. Hill helped her get into medical school at the University of Illinois. Helen earned her MD from Illinois in 1934, the only African-American woman in her class. Dr. Dickens completed her internship at Provident Hospital, a black hospital on the south side of Chicago where she treated tuberculosis patients. She took her first job in 1935 at Alexander's Asperano Health Home in Philadelphia. In addition to her general practice, she provided obstetric and gynecologic care. Changing the face of medicine said this of one of Dr. Dickens' many stories throughout her career. Dr. Dickens worked in difficult circumstances to help her patients living in extreme poverty. In one instance, she arrived at the home of a woman in labor to find that there was no electricity. She had to move the bed to the window to conduct the delivery by streetlight. After six years at Asperano, Dr. Dickens returned to Provident in Chicago to complete a specialist residency in obstetrics and gynecology. She met her husband there in 1943, who was also a doctor. They moved to New York City and worked at Harlem Hospital. At Harlem Hospital, Dr. Dickens was trained by the esteemed surgeon and internist, Dr. Peter Marshall Murray. She completed her residency in 1946 and was then certified by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She returned to Philadelphia in 1948 to serve as the director of Mercy Douglas Hospital, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She also taught at the University of Pennsylvania. Eventually in 1969, Dr. Dickens was named the Associate Dean in the Office for Minority Affairs at the University of Pennsylvania. In five years, enrollment of minority students went from three students to 64 students. Throughout her career, Dr. Dickens was a champion for young girls and women and led incredible research in teen pregnancy and sexual health issues. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Gimbel Philadelphia Award, Medical Woman of the Year, Distinguished Daughter of Pennsylvania, and the Mercy Douglas Hospital Award. In 1986, the National Coalition of 100 Black Women awarded her the Candace Award. Dr. Dickens died in 2001 at the age of 92. Her daughter, Dr. Jane Henderson Brown, still practices medicine in Philadelphia.
Join us next week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Envision Radio as we continue our conversation with Dr. Wright. Until then, remember to be humble, to be kind, to be a good listener, and to be courageous. Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed is written and produced by Kisa Holke and myself. Music is licensed through musicbed.com. Learn more about us, hear more episodes, and send us your questions and comments at twomamasandamustardseed.com.